All right, the sexual revolution that has not ended. It did not end in the 80s. It's still ongoing and it's still here today. We are going to be starting our discussion tonight where any discussion on human sexuality is going to end up in our culture, and that is on the topic of freedom. All right, so Galatians 5.1, Paul says he wasn't referring to sexuality. He was referring to something else, another issue, but it's applicable in this area. He said, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. The sexual revolution has been about liberating society from the repressive constraints of Christian morality. But there's a problem. Because at the same time, the Christian gospel is saying what Paul just said, that it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. In other words, the gospel offers freedom. So we can't have it both ways What's going on? Well, what is going on is a clash of definitions as to what true freedom actually looks like. Both sides are declaring liberty. Both sides are declaring some kind of freedom. And these types of freedom are contradictions to each other. Not only that, but the freedom that is offered by the sexual revolution that we're going to look at tonight is a freedom that actually contradicts itself. And that is going to become evident as we continue. But I want you to notice that Paul defines for us in Galatians 5 what this freedom is going to look like. He points out in verse 13, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. What's the flesh? It's our broken humanness that we have not yet been saved from. We're still in this broken human body with distorted appetites. They're still there. They're with us, and it's still prone to selfishness. He says, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for that broken humanness, for that inclination towards selfish ambitions, but through love, serve one another. In other words, look out for the other's best interest. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. In other words, if you're biting and devouring the other person and they're free to do so to you, guess what? You're going to get injured as well. Freedom, in this sense, would work both ways. The culture says that the Christian gospel is oppressive, that it comes with a list of do's and don'ts, and this is especially evident in sexuality. Yet the Christian gospel claims to offer freedom. What does that look like? Well, we have to look at, first of all, what freedom cannot be. What it cannot be. Freedom as Paul has already pointed out, cannot enable one person to infringe on the rights of another individual. Paul put it in terms of biting and devouring one another. It's like a cannibalistic imagery that he's giving to us. Be careful because if you're biting and devouring the other person, well, then they're free to do it back to you. Not a great rule. So we live in a free society. But our free society has to have rules. For instance, how did you all get here tonight, right? 
You got here on roads. Those roads have rules. They have rules, why? To keep drivers free from danger. That's why we have traffic lights and we have lines in the middle of the road and everyone knows what side of the line they're supposed to be on. I can't be driving here tonight saying, you know what? I'm free to do whatever I want, so I'm going to drive on the left-hand side of the road. Not a great idea. We understand that. Freedom has to have boundaries. We can't just be free to infringe on the rights of another individual. I'm free to make choices when I go to the grocery store, but I'm not free to use your wallet to pay for my choices. That's how it goes. And this this is actually the picture that comes up in the book of Judges in the Old Testament. When there was no king in Israel... And everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. What did that look like in their society? Well, it was slowly spiraling downwards, very applicable to today, but it led to guerrilla warfare, objectifying women, enslaving them mainly as sexual objects. In fact, there's one very gruesome episode in Judges of a gang rape that took place in a certain town, and then the repercussions of that afterwards with a civil war that broke out throughout Israel at that time. There was national weakness. There was societal chaos. All of that came because why? Everyone was free to do whatever they wanted. That leads not to a utopia like cultural Marxists want us to believe. It leads to chaos. What freedom must be? Well, what freedom must be relies on two prepositions. The first one being that we live in a broken world. And the world will stay broken until Christ returns. We live in a broken world. That's why we cannot talk about utopias and perfect societies and so on, because the world is still broken and it's going to be. But secondly, a little more personally, preposition two, presupposition two, we all have hearts or desires that default towards selfishness. We are all naturally self-centered beings. The longer we live relationally to each other, the more that is exposed, that we are naturally self-centered. That's what we are. So based on these two presuppositions, which are witnessed in scripture, and go through and do a biblical survey of this, both of these are true, freedom must be directly bound to a standard of right and wrong. Now the question is, who makes the standard? You, me, culture, the media, Hollywood, government? Back during the Nuremberg trials after World War II, when some of the uh, Nazis were subject to, uh, were put on trial for their war crimes, One of the defenses that they made during that time was that they were not subject to American, British, or Russian law since they were serving. They were not citizens of those countries. They were citizens of Germany. And the whole world, glued to the Nuremberg trials at the time, was forced to face a very difficult fact that something higher than ourselves must determine what is good and what is evil. Something higher than ourselves must determine what is good and what is evil. The higher law reflects the necessity of a higher law giver. It has to. 
So in our culture today, there is a boundary that is put around human sexuality that by culture and then by Christianity, and it's a very different boundary. The boundary for the culture is consent. It's a very shaky boundary to have. In other words, anything, anything goes if it is between consenting people. And when I say consenting people, I'm not talking about two consenting people. I'm talking about whatever number you want it to be. It's a shaky term because obviously, well, think about it. (laughs) The word coercion. Think about where it is right now. We're not coercing you. We're just going to take everything away from you until you have no other choice. Consent is a very, very shaky term to be using as a boundary for sexual ethics. You can influence people. One person may be mature. Another person may not be mature. Consent leads to great legal risks since generally it's verbal consent rather than written consent and therefore can lead to especially men not being protected from allegations. Just think of some of the Supreme Court justices in the U.S. and some of the allegations that have been made against them in recent years. And consent does not require any kind of commitment or promise. No holds barred. That's the hookup culture of today. That's consent. It has nothing to do with promises or commitment of any kind. But the Christian boundary is covenant marriage. It's a covenant before God and people. It is witnessed and it is binding for life. That may not be the cultural view of of covenant marriage, but that is the Christian view, that is the biblical view of covenant marriage. It, is exclusive, it exclusively involves two people of the opposite gender, one man and one woman for life. And covenants, by the way, in the Old Testament, if you uh, do any kind of historic research of what it was, for instance, circumcision was a covenant in the Old Testament or a sign of a covenant. Covenants in the Old Testament were very bloody affairs. They usually involve blood, and the reason was they were very serious. And when two parties got together and sacrificed or cut up an animal, they were actually saying, this will happen to us if we break this covenant. It's very serious, very intense definition in the ancient Near East of what covenants really were. Of course, covenant marriage is on a deeper spiritual, emotional, relational, and then, within the boundary of marriage, physical intimacy. That's the goal. It's far deeper than what our culture is trying to promote. All right, so we are going to get into the culture's discipleship program and what it looks like. Folks, I hope you're prepared for this. This is uh, devastating information. And we're going to be on this for probably about an hour. We're going to have to move through it very quickly. There's a lot that I'm not able to touch tonight, but we're going to do our very best. But the main narrative behind the persistent sexualization of Western culture is, here's a freedom term for you, the liberation of oppressed people, impulses, and feelings. 
Liberation, that's what we're looking for. We, we need to liberate people who are being oppressed sexually. Where did these come from? Well, first of all, we're going to look back to the beliefs that were behind the revolution. There were four men in the 19th century we're going to look at and one man in the 20th century. Tonight, the four influenced the one. All four of these men, in fact, all five of these men, held one thing in common. They all denied the existence of a higher power, a higher moral lawgiver, the existence of God. In their view, we are like the boys in Lord of the Flies. We are on our own, abandoned on an island with nobody to answer to. And each of them had a theory about why humans do what they do. And that's what I want to get to. I want to drill down and just note with you uh, what each of these men thought was what was behind human behavior. So why you make the choices you make. All these men had something different to say. The first one is Charles Darwin. And he believed that human behavior is because of our animal instincts. That obviously came from his theory uh, that we have all descended from the, our common ancestors, all animals, all species come from one common ancestor. It's really hard to explain that because there's no evidence for it. If you want a great video to watch, just go watch Ray Comfort's Evolution Versus God, where he actually talks to a number of biology students, biology professors, and continually asks them, can you show me the evidence for any kind of evolution between two different species. And they're all left scratching their heads saying, we have none. And his whole point is to go back and say, well, then you have faith in your science. It's not so much that science is something that is fact that you know because you've seen it. No, you have to trust what you haven't seen, which looks like faith, which is exactly what they say Christians are guilty of is blind faith. I would call that blind faith. But Darwin believed that basic human behavior is our animal instinct. We're just all animals. That's all we are. And we just follow after whatever that animal instinct is, and you just need to let it out. Let the animal out of the cage, so to speak. Next is Karl Marx. We've talked about him already. And uh, on our first night, we described his view of the world again, a godless world. He believed it was a material world, and therefore everyone... Uh, was driven by economic factors, the need for money, the need to survive, and so on. So it was economic instincts that make people uh, choose what they're going to do. The third one is Friedrich Nietzsche. He was probably the most depressed of all of these. And uh, because he believed that we had philosophically murdered God and destroyed him, and he no longer existed even in our minds anymore, that really the world is hopeless and it will end and we are going to destroy it because we've destroyed religion and we've destroyed a, more high, a higher moral lawgiver. He wasn't wrong in some sense because atheism became the way people looked at the world. It did lead to the bloodiest century ever, ever in the 20th century. He predicted uh, what was going to happen with the world wars and so on. He also ended the last 11 years of his life completely insane with a complete loss of his faculties, which is a fitting end for a man like this. But he believed that we are all motivated by desire to rule over others, a power instinct. Next is Sigmund Freud. Sigmund Freud had some very strange ideas. 
many of which even his colleagues said, yeah, we're not gonna, we're not gonna accept that. We're not with you. Uh, he was greatly influenced by Nietzsche and Darwin uh, and approached his area of study. He was a medical doctor. All these guys had a specific, it's interesting, they all had a different professional background. Darwin was a scientist. Marx was an economist. Uh, Nietzsche was a philosopher. Sigmund Freud was a physician and a psychologist. Uh, he had some different theories. He had one theory, the seduction theory, that claimed that neurosis or mental agitation, anxiety, and so on was caused by child molestation, that you were, if you had some uh, mental illnesses, it was probably because you were molested as a child, even if you can't remember it. Eventually, he believed other things like uh, that the, uh, he had a theory that claimed that the male child in the family, uh, this is going to go into, you know, the uh, the destruction of the family we're going to look at next week, but he believed that the male child of the family was driven by a jealousy of his father over his mother's sexual affection. Yeah, that's crazy. But he, uh, he, he pushed that. So neurosis was no longer caused by molestation, but rather by infantile sexual instincts. And yes, infantile. He believed that children were perverse and that what happens over time is that we, we repress their sexual uh, perverseness with our perversities with our, the morals of society that we put on them, that sexual abstinence and self-control were seen as forms of this repression. And that freedom from this repression came from something he called psychoanalysis, where a phys physician would sit and listen to an individual and these repressed memories and ideas and instincts would start to come out and the physician would be listening without any judgment and so on, thus liberating the individual from the oppression of guilt and repressed sexual instincts and so on. Freud obviously believed that uh, the sex drive, the pleasure drive was the principal determining factor in human behavior. All right, so that's four men uh, in the 19th century that very much have affected where we are at right now. Even if you've never heard of them before, this is where academia gets their beliefs and their worldviews from. They get it from men like this and from what they believe. The fifth man that walked into the scene, we've looked at him already a few nights, cancel culture and so on, is Her Herbert Marcusa. Uh, and he took many of these and he blended them together and he wrote a very um, pivotal book that came out, I think it was in the 1950s, and then the second edition came out in 1965 called Eros and Civilization. Mainly uh, blending Marx and Freud together. And his idea was that modern capitalist society, and you'll see this, high school kids are being taught these things right now, just down the road, not very far from here. So there's this tension going on between your sex drive and your money drive. And again, this is what happened in the 60s with the sexual revolution. Marcusa was behind that. And what he believed was going on was the desire for success in the capitalist world is repressed or misplaced sexual drive. That's what it is. So people who build a career, people who are going after a career, it's because they're frustrated sexually. 
They're repressed sexually. So Christian sexual morals were set up and have been used by the elite of society to repress and enslave the poor of society for capital gain. In other words, you're working so much that your sex life is repressed and and therefore it is up to the cultural Marxist and it's up to society now to to basically revolt, right? To cause a revolution against that kind of cultural oppression. That's what he believed. And that is what is behind, the the, the beliefs behind the sexual revolution. Marcuse wrote and said, liberation of instinctual needs and satisfactions which have hitherto remained tabooed or repressed. Again, the freedom term, liberation. We're looking for liberation of these instinctual needs. And he's talking about sexual needs when he talks about that. All right, so we're going to go through a really brief kind of a train whistle tour of a timeline of kind of what has happened and how we got to where we are and where we're actually going. So this is going to be real quick because we have to move, unfortunately, but I'm going to give these to you as quickly as I can. Again, these are recorded, so you can go back and review them if you need to, but... Some of the highlights, there are many others. It's kind of hard to know which ones to pick and which ones not to. But back in 1916, Margaret Sanger, Ethel Byrne, and Fania Mindell opened their first birth control clinic in Brooklyn. I believe it was in Brooklyn. Margaret Sanger was openly racist in her beliefs. They were arrested a number of times for... Uh, for their sexual ethics and what they were pushing at that time. In 1916, this was revolutionary, right? 1920s, the sexual revolution as a term begins to appear in the roaring 20s. Many people think the sexual revolution was in the 60s. Well, it didn't start then. Uh, Hugh Hefner shows up on the scene in 1953. The Playboy magazine, what, what was so... Um, progressive about Playboy magazine. It wasn't the first pornography that was on the scene, but it was the first pornography that was on the scene mixed with the business world, right? So you had articles that were thoughtful and laid out and so on that was somehow legitimizing what else, the objectification of women that was going on in uh, the Playboy enterprise. 1960, the first birth control pill goes on the market. It was not made... Birth control as a pill was not made for Christians to somehow determine how many children they can have and be good stewards of their finances. No, the birth control pill was originally created so that women could have sex whenever and with whomever without consequences. That's what it was made for. And uh, it progressed from there. This is not a talk about uh, birth control and that kind of thing. That's That's another conversation. 1963, after the assassination of JFK, I don't know, uh, probably could do some more research into if there were any links, but at this time, the countercultural movement gets its wings and it takes off. And that included civil rights, feminism, uh, the environmental concerns, opposition to the Vietnam War, anti-nuclear attitudes, experimentation with psychedelic drugs, um, Eastern religions and the occult, all of this is happening right around 1963. And we are now in the air, we are airborne with the sexual revolution. Next, on the scene, 1965, 
Marcuse's second edition. This is the one that gained great popularity. In fact, uh, the revolutionaries were all running under the banner. So the university students were all going under the banner of Marx, Mao, and Marcusa. Those are the three heroes of the cultural Marxists during 1965. 1969, first pornographic film is produced. The first Woodstock event takes place. The free love, free sex, rock and roll, it's all together now. The Stonewall riots in uh, Greenwich Village, New York, the Stonewall Inn was raided by the police. It was a, um, a gay bar that was raided. And of course, out of that came some riots, I think for about five or six days, and the gay liberation movement began uh, at that time during the Stonewall riots. 1973, abortion is legalized in the United States up to the first two trimesters. Now, little Canadian side note on this, 1969, Pierre Trudeau amended the criminal code in Canada. Notice the relationship here to our current times allowing doctors to perform abortions if pregnancy threatened the life of a mother. Before that, abortion was illegal in Canada. And by 1988, the Supreme Court of Canada struck down the abortion law as unconstitutional. Canadian Chief Justice Brian Dixon wrote, notice again, notice the anti-freedom language that is used. Judge Dixon wrote, forcing a woman by threat of criminal sanction to carry a fetus to term unless she meets certain criteria unrelated to her own priorities and aspirations is a profound interference with a woman's body and thus a violation of her security of the person. Do you notice all the freedom language? Forcing a woman against her own priorities and aspirations. It's a profound interference with a woman's body. Nothing is said about the child's body. 1975, the American Psychological Association changed homosexuality from a disorder to an orientation. That was key. 1981, the AIDS epidemic is on the scene. 1993, the internet is launched wonderful tool, and it has been used in many ways to progress sexual discipleship in our culture. I learned as a teenager how dangerous this was. The internet hit our home without any real warning of what it involved. My parents had no idea what was on the internet or what could be offered. And so I can tell you tonight, and I share this with my children, always emphasizing the effects of sin, the effects of falling into these traps and temptations, and the effects that the material I saw at that time on the internet had on me. And emphasizing as well the effects it had on my relationship with my wife later on and with the mother of my children. The internet is something, is an area, again, that is being used to disciple our children, and we need to be so cautious about it. 2017, the Me Too movement. Alyssa Milano, Hollywood actress, 
responded to allegations against Harvey Weinstein at the time by tweeting. She sent out a tweet. If you have been sexually harassed or assaulted, reply to this tweet with me too. And within 24 hours, 55,000 replies within that time frame were uh, responded to her tweet. 55,000 replies and the Me Too movement was born. It didn't just stop with culture. Obviously, it came into the church. There has been much um, that has been exposed in the church and it's not all bad. But again, we're going to look at how the freedom movement of the sexual revolution isn't as free as they thought it would be. And the Me Too movement is actually uh, recognizing the sexual revolution collapsing on itself. This freedom is not truly free. Today, hundreds of pediatric gender clinics and pediatric, yes, for children. Gender dysphoria that once afflicted 0.01% of the population, most if not all were boys. Now, the number of girls claiming gender dysphoria is over 4,400%. Let me say that again, 4,400% of what it used to be. That's what we call a social contagion. It is socially contagious now to identify as having gender dysphoria. We're going to look a little bit more at that a little bit later as we look at the after effects or the fallout of all of this. What's going to happen tomorrow? Again, no details right now. We'll look at this a little bit later, but there is a growing movement, folks. If you're not aware of it already, there is a growing movement to make pedophilia, sex with children, a sexual orientation rather than a mental illness. It's coming. You may not want to believe that. That's not a conspiracy theory. We're going to look at what the evidence is for that in a little bit, and it should shock us and break our hearts at the same time. Well, what are the cultural beliefs about sex? From all of this that happened over the timeline and based on Darwinian evolution and what Marx and Freud and Nietzsche all had to say, what has happened to the culture? What does the culture actually believe about sex? Now, we could go into the different hashtags that are made today about it, you know, um, love has no home here, love is love, and so on. But we're going to dig down a little bit and notice what the culture is actually saying, what their discipleship model, what the content of it really is. The first one is that sex is an instinct that happens naturally. If you watch how Hollywood depicts, depicts pardon me, uh, sex as a human impulse that comes over two people at the same time, soft music in the background, proper lighting, and the two human beings know exactly what to do at the right times. It's all an instinct. Again, like Darwin said, it's all part of just our animal makeup. We just know what to do naturally and so on. To think of sex as being challenging or requiring any kind of self-sacrifice or self-control is very unattractive at best and degrading at worst. And might we add that Hollywood as a whole has proven by the reality of their broken relationships that the notion that sex is instinctive and just happens flawlessly is a false hope that no one can live up to. And yet they still preach it. Secondly, sex fills an appetite that we are entitled to. 
It's an appetite. This is nothing new, by the way. This was true in New Testament times. Paul wrote into the Corinthian culture. We're gonna look at that a little bit later. And they viewed sex in the same way. They said things like meat is for the body and the body for meat and so on. And both are gonna go to the grave. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, 1 Corinthians 6. And God is gonna destroy both one and the other. Therefore, it's just like eating food. I'm hungry, I eat. And it doesn't matter what I eat because eventually I die. Everything gets decomposed and it all wastes away. It all fades. It has no significance on who I am as an individual. And that is what our society says. What follows from that is the natural assumption then that it is immoral to starve a child. It is immoral to starve an individual. After all, if sex is an appetite, then you must feed the appetite. And to withhold feeding the appetite is as evil as physical starvation. Paul had something to say about that that we're going to look at a little bit later, not now. Next, sex follows feelings to be gratified. Follow your heart. Be true to yourself. The culture teaches its disciples to regard feelings above everything else. That's why today I notice there's a lot of uh, in conversations, uh, I think it's more with younger generations. So this is just an observation tonight that sentences start with things like, I feel like that's true. I feel like this individual is wrong with what they said because, and it could be that the sentence may end with a fact that it's based on, but it always seems to start with, I feel like, and much of our culture seems to be driven by that kind of language. It just is. I've noticed it. I observe culture. I'm observing what people say and how they think and so on. And, and what is how, how communication. And it doesn't seem like a big deal that we say things like that after all. We're just expressing our language and so on. But we have to understand that's reflecting what our culture has been teaching and feeding us with. The idea that feeling trumps everything else. And this is the justification for same-sex attraction, gender reassignment, adultery, because after all, love is love, and the message is that you can love who you want. And therefore, when you stop feeling in love, what does the culture tell you to do then? Well, you've got to be true to your feelings. You have to be authentic. And therefore, if you stop feeling in love, then you're being hypocritical to stay in that relationship and to stay committed to that individual. It's time to move on and find sexual fulfillment and, of course, freedom elsewhere. Next, sex is an identity to be expressed. It's an identity. Culture is obsessed with worshiping the, the idea of self, finding self, being true to self, trusting self, and so on. Sex is seen as another means to expressing self by way of sexual identity. To not express yourself sexually is to be considered hypocritical and inauthentic. Self-denial is deeply dishonest and immoral. I mean, they're not even saying anymore, well, you do you. They're not saying that anymore to Christians. No, no. What you believe with self-control and with abstinence and so on and with keeping sexuality within heterosexual, committed, covenant, lifelong marriage is deeply dishonest and immoral. And the last one, sex is a form of oppression. 
Subjects such as abstinence and self-control are considered socially repressive and we have damaged our children by teaching these things. They are considered tactics used by the evil capitalist, according to Marcusa, to keep people frustrated so they will produce more in the workplace. Yeah, that's how you keep productivity up in your workplace is by teaching Christian morals and telling people to live good lives and work hard and so on. The goal of culture is to gain sainthood in the new secular religion. And you gain that sainthood by fighting for sexual liberation. This requires you to be an activist, just like with critical race theory that we looked at a number of nights ago, for whatever, to be an activist for whatever sexual liberation movement is currently trending. There's actually a lot of parallels between what is being taught in critical race theory and what is being taught in the sexual revolution at the same time. Very, very similar things are being said. Um, even, uh, for instance, when it comes to, we'll look at this a little bit, a bit later, but uh, to say to uh, people in school, well, depending on your skin color, that's what determines whether you have a right to speak or not. And if you have white skin color, well, you have no right to speak on this subject because you're white. That's a racist statement. In the sexual area, we say to women today who want to keep their sports to themselves and keep their prisons to themselves and keep their bathrooms to themselves, we say, you have no right to speak about those, those spaces. So you need to be quiet because you're a bigot. It's the same idea. It's the same kind of reasoning that's going on in, in these areas. And all of it, by the way, going back to our cultural Marxist lesson, what is all of it for? All of it is to create social chaos. It's to destroy Western society as we know it so that we can build it completely from the ground up as something new. That's what it's for. What are the methods that are used for this discipleship. We need to be aware of these. The first one is the home. Yes, the home is broken in many cases. Sadly, our culture has, has encouraged this, has made it okay. Cases of molestation and sexual abuse, many times over, it's because children have been left vulnerable in the home or with relatives or neighbors or even, sadly, with parents. Unfettered internet and technology, or parents who show no signs of what healthy intimacy looks like in a healthy covenant marriage. Yeah, this is challenging. That's why... I feel it is very important that next week we spend an entire night looking at the family and looking at how the culture is seeking to destroy the family and looking at challenges for us as believers in making the family not just stay together, but to glorify God in healthy, intact relationships in our families. It's very important. Secondly, public schools. This is kind of a no-brainer. It's obvious. I've already spent... Uh, some time on previous nights just uh, demonstrating that from what I know of the school system. I've heard even more stories in the past week of the exposure that young people are getting to filth 
in our schools. It is all part of a sexual discipleship program. George Lukacs, or Georg, sorry, uh, back in 1919 uh, in Hungary introduced, he was one of the first, one of the former cultural Marxists as well, um, was considered one of the brilliant Marxists since Karl Marx. He introduced a radical sex education program to the Hungarian society, Hungarian schools to destroy the Judeo-Christian notions of sexual ethics and to weaken the bourgeois family in 1919. That's a long time ago. It was no different today. The radical sex ed curriculum under Kathleen Wynne, and that really hasn't changed that much. Now, I'm going to be fair here because uh, I've had children in the public school system for a number of years as well. Um, our boys are at home right now. And a lot of that, even though the government sex ed program might be a certain direction and a certain bent, a lot of it comes down to the school system or the school, the actual local school that you are a part of and who's leading that school and who's teaching your children. And we have found that to be true. And we found that in many cases in our own personal experience, we, did not, uh, we were not confronted with um, some of this up until actually this year in the high school setting. Um, but that being said, you know, behind the radical sex ed program in Ontario is a convicted child pornographer, Ben Levin. Maybe you heard of him. And uh, they, are, they, they want sexuality introduced to children in grade one and moving up from there. Lines up with Freud and Marcusa who believe that children are sexually perverse and we should do everything we can to draw that out of them, not repress it in them. Technology, of course, we looked at that last week. The internet, apps, video games, advertising, yes, you know, the kids watching YouTube, might be a great YouTube show, might be clean, but the advertising that comes on in the middle is designed to sexually disciple your children. Next, media and Hollywood. By the way, we're going to get into how we combat this in a little bit. Stick with me and we'll get there. Media and Hollywood. For Hollywood, it's all about timing. They slowly work to desensitize the culture to what was once viewed as evil. That's why tonight you might be shocked about the pedophilia statement because right now the culture still, for the most part, deems it as evil and people are still put in jail when they are caught. But here's what Hollywood does. They start with a morally questionable activity and introduce it to the culture. They may not be endorsing it at this point, they're just exploring it. They might, and they're not making a moral argument for it. They're just, it's in a story. It's based on narrative and emotion. That eventually turns from exploration to endorsement. And Hollywood and the media begin to clearly endorse this as something that is righteous and good. And then the third step is that all dissent is silenced. That's cancel culture. Once it has been endorsed by the media and social media and Hollywood and 
cultural influencers, dissent is then silenced at all costs. And then finally, there's a conversion of the mind and will of society. And we see it all around us today. The things that once were considered, yeah, that's not good. That's not going to help society are now seen as it's fine. It's okay. In fact, it should be taught to our children. They need to learn a new standard of morality. And I have one more. I know it's not on your sheet um, because I put it down later afterwards. But public institutions also, I think, need to be uh, noted. Such things in the U.S. as Planned Parenthood, uh, in Canada, hospitals, um, some doctors, not all doctors, obviously, government, mandatory training, right, that everyone has to take to be a part of certain things, to, to be an employee at companies and things like that. Companies, if you want to stay open, you must provide mandatory training to your employees, and all it is is indoctrination and, again, another discipleship program. That's what it is, and they just keep pushing it, pushing it, pushing it. And we feel like we can't say no, we can't say anything against it. The problem is, in one sense it's a problem, in another sense it's encouraging for us tonight. We can argue and debate and everything else, and we should, but because the truth is on our side, time is going to prove us right. We don't need to be worked up about these things. We do need to be brokenhearted about them. We don't need to be all stressed out and anxious over them. Ultimately, society is going to self-destruct. Sadly, tragically, lives are going to be lost and have been lost already. We're going to see that already. And that's why, as I was going through this in the past uh, number of days, uh, it's very difficult to digest um, some of the things that I've had to see. It's sad, but it's true. In time, the Christian gospel and the Christian boundary of covenant marriage is going to be proven to be the only answer. It's going to be. Culture is self-destructing, even as we speak. And either Jesus is going to come back or we're going to face spiritual revival, one of the two. It might mean that culture has to go further than it already has, but the effects are devastating. Look at the devastating results of the sexual liberation. All of this, folks, is in the name of freedom. Just please remember that. All that we're going to look at is in the name of liberation. We're liberating people. And you will notice a common victim throughout all of these. It's always the children. And nothing breaks your heart as a parent more than to think of your own children suffering, let alone the children of others. And that's where we're at. The first one is broken hearts. Yeah, maybe this doesn't seem like a big deal. It is a big deal. It's a big deal to God. Free love means love without commitment. The hookup culture allows people to express themselves sexually with even so much as knowing the, each other's names. We call it casual sex. There's no such thing, folks. God didn't create it that way. The Me Too movement 
is evidence of the devastation caused as men take advantage of women without thought about cherishing, cherishing or committing. Children's hearts are broken through all of this. And over time, people's souls are defined by the rupturing of relationships. Commitment becomes harder and harder and harder. Secondly, broken homes. Culture may argue that families don't need a mom and a dad in the home for stability and welfare of the children, but children know better. Liberating parents from self-control has led to infidelity, promiscuity, and so on, and the children are shuffled from one place to the next without any structure. I know this. I remember in one of our previous ministries, we spent a lot of time uh, dealing with children that we brought in off the streets in Chatham and uh, taught them the Bible and taught them things that, about God, taught them the gospel and so on. And we'd bring these kids in and your heart would break to hear their stories and to hear the homes they came from and the family lives and so on. And we would go and visit the families and get into their homes and get a chance to see the environment. Many of these kids, we were able to get them and bring them to our ministries and to kids' outreaches and so on because their parents could care less where they were. So it worked in our favor that way. And they would come and they'd hear and, and they would in many ways be drawn to us. They wanted to come. Why? Because someone in their life actually showed love to them. We'd actually show discipline to them, right? No, you can't do that. You do that again, we're sending you home. Guess what? They stopped doing it. Why? They felt loved. Someone actually put some structure in their life. My wife came from a broken home. And she can tell you from firsthand experience, the heartache and the ways that it does affect how you see the world how you see and view men as a little girl growing up in that kind of environment. Broken homes have shattered the lives of our kids. And much, and we're going to see this tonight, much of what has happened is a result of homes that have been devastated in this way. Next, we have the genocide of unborn babies, otherwise known as abortion. In 2020, in the United States, 42.6 million babies were slaughtered in the U.S. How do you put that number into perspective? I don't know. 100 million people lost their lives during all the tries for the attempts for communist utopia in the 20th century. And they were able to accomplish 42.6 million individuals slaughtered in one year. In Canada, the latest numbers I could find were in 2019, 83,576 babies slaughtered in our nation in 2019. I don't know what the number was for 2020. But the culture takes the moral high ground of fighting for the rights of the woman ignoring the rights of the separate, key word, separate human being in the womb of the woman. And these babies are slaughtered in the name of freedom, which is the ultimate irony. The next one is gender conversions. I have a video later on that I, I want to show you. We probably won't play the whole thing. You can watch the rest of it on YouTube. 
It's readily available. My daughter showed it to me last week, and I knew I had to show it. But this one, the story of Kira Bell, is a separate story. Kira lives in the UK. Uh, she came from an unhappy home with an alcoholic mother, an emotionally distant father. She was a tomboy. She was accepted by boys just naturally when she was a little girl. And uh, that's where she found her acceptance. That's where she found her value. And then she hit puberty and lost the acceptance of boys as she became a, a developing young woman. And because she lost acceptance as one of the boys, she went into severe depression. She went to one of these gender clinics in the UK, was diagnosed with gender dysphoria at the age of 15 years old. I'm going to read a few quotes from her, just so you understand from her point of view uh, what was going on. She says that what was really going on instead of gender dysphoria was that I was a girl insecure in my body who had experienced parental abandonment, felt alienated from my peers, suffered from anxiety and depression, and struggled with my sexual orientation. She was put on puberty blockers at 16. She began receiving testosterone shots at 17. And she had a double mastectomy at the age of 20. And she says this, she says, but the further my transition went, the more I realized that I wasn't a man and never would be. We are told these days that when someone presents with gender dysphoria, this reflects a person's real and true self, that the desire to change genders is set. That's back to the identity belief in the discipleship model. But she says, this was not the case for me. As I matured, I recognized that gender dysphoria was a symptom of my overall misery, not its cause. It was a symptom, not its cause. The consequences? Possible infertility, the loss of her breasts and the ability to breastfeed, atrophied genitals, permanently changed voice, facial hair. Eventually, she was the claimant of a lawsuit against the health clinic re responsible for believing that she could give consent as a young teenager, which is exactly what the government is pushing today in our nation and in the United States as well, pushing that young people as young as 10 years old are able to give consent, that they realize and understand the full consequences of their choices at those ages. And they're able to give their own consent to be put on these drugs, to alter their lives irreversibly forever. The judges in the UK, interestingly enough, noted a lack of evidence for putting children as young as 10 on drugs to block puberty. In fact, she won her case. More, more evidence that consent is not a safe boundary. She actually notes, Kira Bell actually notes, and I referred to this a little bit earlier, but that in 2009, 2010, 77 children were referred to the Gender Identity Development Service. This is in the UK, I believe. 52% were boys. Okay, so the majority at that point, close majority, but of 77 children, 52% were boys. 
Fast forward a decade to 2018 to 2019, 624 boys are referred and 1,740 girls, 74% of the total were girls at that point. Kira reflects on it and she says, I was an unhappy girl who needed help. Instead, I was treated like an experiment. Going to notice a video later on of Walt Hare um, and his story. It's an incredible testimony that he has to give as well. But not only that, the next one is infringement on safe spaces for women. Uh, So Laurel Hubbard, uh, most of you know and heard the uh, discussion going on, the cultural narrative, first transgender Olympian. during the last Olympics, Fallon Fox, a transgender UFC fighter who entered the ring with Tamika Brents and cracked her skull with a blow. UFC fighters are all saying, this is not bravery, folks. And all of this is in the name of freedom. So that we are, getting, we are able now, we are allowed to get in the ring with a woman and beat her and crack her skull in the name of freedom. California passed a law that men identifying as women are allowed to be held in women's facilities, to which many men decided to identify as women and enter those women's facilities where women are now getting pregnant from rape and abuse. The infringement on safe spaces for women all in the name of freedom. Just recently, this one comes to mind, but the dad who was uh, arrested at a school board meeting in Loudoun County, Virginia, and everyone was vilifying him. How dare he? He's a radical. He's actually a national uh, terrorist and so on that they're going to be investigating these school board meetings because of men like him. And then it came out what was actually going on Uh, that the superintendent of that school board was covering up the fact that this man's daughter had been raped in a girl's bathroom by a boy wearing a skirt. And they covered it up. The lawyers were saying, and the prosecutors were all saying, you need to keep silent on this if you want justice. Silent, silent, silent. And then over the summer, he found out that another girl was raped by the same boy in a girl's bathroom. And he lost it. When he went to a school board meeting and the, I believe it was the superintendent said, we know no such thing of any such case and so on. And he lost it and he was arrested and vilified for it. Now it's coming out, it's coming to light, which led me into a conversation with my own daughter about going into high school bathrooms in Windsor, Ontario, because I have no, I have no idea, but I'm pretty sure the rules are probably the same here because of inclusivity and liberty and freedom and so on. To which, don't use the bathroom at school. But listen, safe spaces for women are no longer safe spaces. They have been infiltrated by activists, all in the name of freedom. Objectification of women. Again, this is the Me Too movement, Harvey Weinstein and so on. Hollywood in general. The same people that are the saints of the sexual revolution, this new secular religion, which is really the natural result of telling women to express their sexuality with freedom 
And that the more immodest that they can be, the more free they are. And then surprise, surprise, they're objectified by men and they're told to casually hook up with men who offer zero commitment for using their bodies. Of course it's going to collapse. What could possibly go wrong with this plan? And of course, lastly, the growing acceptance towards pedophilia, you say How so? Well, first of all, the arguments that have been used in every other case for every other, every other sexual deviancy can be used in the case of pedophilia as well. Netflix produced, I think it's a movie called Cuties, in which an 11-year-old actress is sexually objectified in the movie, and they say, oh, yes, but the movie itself is portraying how bad this is. Yeah, that's how Hollywood starts. They explore it. The next movie will endorse it. Or 10 movies down the road will endorse it. Pedophilia is increasingly becoming uh, or being called a sexual orientation. Pedophiles are increasingly being presented as victims. There are TED Talks about this. You can find them online that are increasingly saying, yeah, but we're not going to call these people evil. We're, we're not going to call it that. We need to really have sympathy and, and so on. We're going to call, they're, they're victims. Really, that's what's going on. And it's, it's being set up as an orientation. All that has to happen now is really that the APA comes out and declares it a sexual orientation. And then the human rights movement can come on board and the Equality Act will cover them and it will be celebrated by the media. That's all that's left to happen. And you and I will have very little to say about it. 